Uh, We're going to look at Psalm 51 today. You can turn there if you'd like to. And uh, we've been going through the Psalms in part because in our community Bible reading, those of you who've joined in uh, know that we've, we've, we're reading a psalm on Saturday. And the psalms, um, the psalms, quite frankly, are a little bit intimidating to preach from because they aren't a particular story that you can follow through, nor do they make a specific theological point that you can really focus on. They tend to be broader. Some of them are very long, and if you don't cover the whole thing, uh, you get lost in some of the details. And I, I've been scared to venture in, and so a couple weeks ago when I decided to preach from Psalm 84, um, I, I was dipping my toe in, and the water seemed warm, and so I thought, okay, here, here's a chance where we can take four weeks and not just look at four psalms, but understand how we can look at the psalms and use the psalms in our lives, either, either as medicine as a doctor would apply some kind of treatment to a, a, a sickness or a condition or some kind of, of hurt or suffering, um, or not just as medicine, but as, as preventative medicine, at, that we would use them in our lives kind of like, kind of like we take vitamins or, or we, we drink um, orange juice to to boost up our immune system to these things. And and so the first week we looked at a psalm that just looks at God's majesty. And then um, then last week we looked at Psalm 8 that that looked at God as as creator and, and redeemer and our position. And then this week, this week we come to a psalm that's it's called a, a penitential psalm, a, a psalm of repentance before God. It's a, it's a pattern that we can follow. And this is, this is one of the best known, probably the best known of the penitential psalms, but there are, there, there are some others in the, in the Psalter. Um, psalm 32 is a good example. We use that sometimes as our, uh, as our confession. Psalm 25 uh, and I can give you some more if, you, if you'd like, but you can go out and, and search for these and find them easily. And they're really meant to, to be a, um, a pattern that we can follow. I've picked some of the best known psalms, and that in itself is a challenge because you come to it and you say, well, I already know this. I use it all the time. I pray through this. I, I know it front and back. And so I'm tempted to either try to tell you something you don't know and impress you, or, um, or, or just gloss over the psalm, and maybe even assume some of you know it that don't know it. But this was this was helpful for me. I came across something that a preacher said. He said, "You know, we don't we don't reduce scripture to sermons. So my words that I add to this are just." kind of a, a poor reflection of what the Scripture itself says. I can explain it, but the power of this is in the Scripture itself, and so it's, it's good for us to go and look at it. 
and to understand even familiar words better. So let's, let's turn to the text here, Psalm 51. And before I read, I, I want to open us in prayer. Father, would you now open our eyes to see and our innermost parts to understand and feel the power of your word as you use it to change and to, to, to transform and to renew our lives lived before you and, and before one another. In Jesus' name, amen. The beginning of this says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after David had gone in to Bathsheba. We should stop right there because these little introductions give us a a lot of information uh, in a short amount of time. And, And if we don't understand what the situation was when the prophet Nathan went into David and after David had gone into Bathsheba, we miss the point of the psalm. So as probably all of us know, one spring when... In Israel, Israelite time, springtime was when people renewed their conflicts with other nations, with other people around them. And so, so people went to war in the spring. They stopped in the winter. It was hard to fight, and they kind of had a mutual understanding. Some of them didn't follow it all the time. But in springtime, when the kings went to war, we read in 1 Samuel 11, one year, David stayed home. The king was supposed to go with his armies. But David chose to stay home in the comfort of his his palace. And one evening, while David was walking on the roof balcony of his palace, he looked out and he saw Bathsheba in her house. Bathsheba was the wife of a soldier in David's army who was out fighting. His name was Uriah. And David said, I want Bathsheba, and sent his servant, and Bathsheba was brought to David. And of course, David slept with her. She went home. A few weeks later, news returned that Bathsheba was pregnant with David's would-be son. And so David, the king, concocted a plan to cover up his Sin and he sent to the battlefield and he said, send Uriah home. And when Uriah came back to the palace, David fed him in the, in the palace and, and then said, go back and enjoy time at home away from the battle. And Uriah, being a good soldier and recognizing that all of his companions, all of his comrades were still out sleeping in tents, said, I can't do that. I'm going to Sleep here with the servants in your quarter until I return to the battlefield. So David wasn't satisfied. So he brought Uriah back, and this time he not only fed him, but he got him drunk. And he said, go, go enjoy time at your home. Uriah again, even in his drunken state, said, no, I can't do that. So David came up with another plan and he sent with Uriah 
back to the battlefield and note in Uriah's hand, saying to his commanders, send Uriah up to the front lines of the battle. And when the fighting is the worst, pull back all the other soldiers but Uriah so that Uriah will die. And news came back to David that in fact Uriah had been killed in battle and David brought Bathsheba in to be his wife and he thought all was covered. Until one day Nathan, servant in David's court and also a prophet of God, came into David and he told David a story. He said, he said, King, in a city there were once two men. One of them was very rich and one of them was very poor. The rich man had all kinds of livestock. The poor man had just one baby lamb. And one day the rich man received a, a guest from a, a faraway place. And instead of taking one of his own many animals and killing it and feeding it to his guest, he went to the poor man and took this lamb, this lamb who this man would hold in his arms and feed from his hand with his children. He took that lamb and he killed it and fed it to his guests. And David was enraged. He said, who would do such a thing? I will surely punish him and make him pay fourfold for what he has done. And Nathan simply said, you are the man, David. You are the man, David. David, in 2 Samuel 11, simply says, I have sinned against you, Lord. Just those words, I have sinned against you, Lord. But in Psalm 51, he pours out his heart before God with more words. After Nathan, the prophet, had exposed his sin. Uriah, the simple Man, soldier, faithful servant, had had his wife stolen and him murdered. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be judged in your words and blameless in your, excuse me, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit, a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice. I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's the goal of a penitential psalm. It's the goal of our coming to a place where we're confessing our sins before God. It's not that we would bemoan our existence and wallow in the dust for the rest of our lives or that we would ignore our sin and fake ourselves into thinking that we are somehow happy. But that we would hear Joy and gladness. How do we hear joy and gladness? We don't, we don't make the sounds ourselves. We hear it from other people. We hear God saying, I, I love you. I delight in you. I am, I am thrilled to call you my son, my daughter. We hear Jesus saying, I love to call you my brother, my sister. We, we hear joy when God sings our praises. When our, our brokenness is healed and we're restored. And yet we use these, these psalms as a pattern so that we know how to experience that joy again, how to experience God's joy. And we can see in David's heart how, how he's looking with hope to something other than himself. 
how he then takes responsibility for his own actions, and, and then what he does in response. And those are three rough points here of how we can follow through this psalm and see from David's pattern, learn from it how we can approach God. The first thing I want us to see is where David looks for hope. He begins verse 1 by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And the psalmist uses three different Hebrew words to express the guilt that sin is in our lives. He starts off by saying our transgressions. Literally, this is what have we done to offend God? He goes next into our iniquity. And this has more of a connotation of how are we convincing ourselves that we really aren't as bad as what God knows we are? And then cleanse me from my sin. Sin is, is, is literally, it's missing the mark. It's like an archer shooting at a, a target and just knowing where he needs to go, but, but being offline. And David knew that he needed, he knew he was offline. He knew he needed God's mercy. And where does he go to find that mercy. It may seem like he starts by just confessing his sins. But it's not enough just to confess our sins. We have to look to somebody who can actually forgive us for those sins. We have to look to the, to the very character of God that he sandwiches right between his cry, his passionate cry for mercy. He puts in these two lines that call on God's character to assure him that he will be forgiven. The first one is according to your steadfast love, and the second one is according to your abundant mercy. A steadfast love, the, the, the Hebrew word is this great word. In fact, I bet now that I say it, you'll see this word all over the place in Scripture. Go to your translation. If you use a different translation, it might translate it a little bit differently. But look at this verse and see how he translates into according to your steadfast love, because the word is in Hebrew is chesed. And it is a big word. That means love, overflowing love, mercy, never failing love, endless and forever love. It is the love that only God in his power and consistency and ability to forgive people who continue to offend him over and over can have for himself. I mean, none of us, all of us, we get to the limit of our love. We try to bear with one another's sins. We try to carry other people's burdens. And we come to a point where we say, I can't do this. It's too much for us. But God never hits that limit. And it's expressed in this three-letter word in Hebrew, has said. But it's not just the love, that powerful kind of love. It's in his abundant mercy. Some places this is translated compassion. It's in the type of compassion 
that doesn't just stop at the head where we say, oh, I see somebody in need and I'm going to go and help them with their need because I know it's the right thing to do. It's the type of compassion that looks on somebody who's hurting and your stomach wrenches because you know how much they're hurting and you feel their pain in the bottom of your soul. This word connotes literally the, um, the, the feeling that you get in your inner parts, in your kidney and in your, your intestines when you feel somebody else's pain or maybe when you feel your own pain or the pain that you've caused somebody else. That stomach sickness. It's the type of compassion that we see in the, the parable, the prodigal son where the son has run off to a far land and he squandered half of, his, of the father's wealth. And the father sees the son far off. And the son has been practicing his speech on how he would ask for mercy. And the father sees his son and despite any dignity he might have, he takes his cloak. which is really tough to run in a cloak of those days, right? He takes his cloak And in a shameful way, almost like taking my jacket and tucking it into my pants so I can run, he goes and runs to the sun because he feels this heartfelt compassion for his son. And that's the type of mercy that that David is calling on God to show him, this abundant mercy, this compassionate mercy. And he couches his approach to God. He centers it on God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy because he knows that God loves to show that love and mercy to his children. David looks to God's character as the place for his hope for forgiveness. Here's the second thing David does. He doesn't try to shirk responsibility. He doesn't try to blame somebody else. He he takes responsibility for his action. Now, it took him a while to get there, but once he was convicted of his sin, he takes full responsibility. Now, I think some people around us, like me, are prone to cynicism. What do I mean by that? I think we come to a passage like this and we say, okay, I see that he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. But, but I also see that David seems to be shirking responsibility a little bit when he says, against you, O Lord, have I sinned. Right? What about Bathsheba and Uriah? I mean, is he, is he really taking full responsibility Isn't it easier to go to God for forgiveness than it is to go to another person for forgiveness? Or or maybe he's shifting blame a little bit when he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, now this is a pretty popular thing to do today. If you go to a counselor, what's the counselor going to say? Tell me about your parents, because it's all their fault. And it seems like David's saying that too, right? This is, this is my mom's fault. I, I, I'm just inheriting this. But David, 
David isn't shirking responsibility and he's not shifting blame. In fact, when he says, against you only, Lord, have I sinned, David is recognizing that to sin against Bathsheba and Uriah was far worse than what he or most of us tend to think of. Because to sin against another person is to sin against God's image that's been put in that person. It's to sin against God himself, and it's a much bigger deal, even though it seems easier to go to God for forgiveness. It's a much bigger deal to sin against God because he's never sinned against you than it is to sin against another person. David's not saying that he didn't sin against Bathsheba. He's not saying that he didn't sin against Uriah. He's admitted that sin as well, and he admits that when he goes to God and says, in sinning against these people, I have sinned against you, O Lord. And that sin before you stands in front of my face always. My sin is ever before me. I can fake it with Bathsheba. She's my wife, but I can't fake it now that I am convicted of my sin before you. And he's not passing blame to his mother either. He's recognizing that this sin against Bathsheba, Uriah, and God isn't the first time he's sinned. It's just the natural outworking of his sinful nature. He's sinned before, and he will sin again. In fact, his sin goes back all the way, not just to his birth, but to the time when his life began, when he was conceived in his mother's womb. David wasn't born as his son was to Bathsheba out of this sin. David was born as the youngest of eight children to a father and mother, to a family, right? David was not, it wasn't his mother who was sinning when she conceived him. He was inheriting the sinful nature that all of us have. (coughs) Every single one of us. And this just was the pinnacle of that sin. It just expressed itself in a far greater way than a lot of people allow themselves to go, than God really allows a lot of people to go. But David recognized that this wasn't anybody's fault, but his own. Because he was a sinner from the beginning. And so he says, God, I know my transgressions. I am guilty before you. I don't have any hope unless... You blot out my sin. Unless, verse 9, you hide your face from my sins. You choose not to look at them. You blot them out like a a, a copyist of of ancient days would make a mistake and and take and and paint white over it. But the, the white doesn't quite disappear, just like whiteout doesn't quite disappear for us. So David says, no, that's not enough. 
He says, I, I want you to wash me whiter than snow. And, and he uses the verb that's used to, to, to wash laundry most of the time. He says, wash my clothes, they're dirty. I need you to wash me whiter than snow. He says, no, but that's not enough. I mean, I can still see the dinge in this whole thing. And so he says, purge me with hyssop. A hyssop is just a branch. It's a, uh, a branch of a, a type of plant that was really... Uh, really absorbent. And so the, the priests in those days would use a hyssop branch and dip it uh, um, in blood and wash the people, sprinkle the people. It's where we get the practice of baptism when we sprinkle and it, because it indicates a, a cleaning that happens of the people when, we, when they're sprinkled, then with blood, now with the water that signifies Christ's blood. And here's the verb he uses. Purge. It's actually the word to sin with a prefix. He's saying, de-sin me. Take away my sin completely because it's the only way that I can stand before you. De-sin me is what is what God does for us. And when, when we are de-sinned, then, then we can teach others God's ways. Teach who God's ways? Teach transgressors God's ways and worship God correctly. Now, Ever notice this? Now, oftentimes, we're most eager to correct other people, to judge other people, to teach transgressors the way they need to go in one of, of two situations. Either it's when we just overcame a sin ourselves and we think, man, why, why aren't you getting past this? I mean, I just did this, right? We, we look at either when we've kind of got this self-righteousness to us or when, like David, we're convincing ourselves that we're really not as bad as we think we are by looking on the sins of others, by, by maybe comparing ourselves, but by, by saying, you know, man, I, 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 don't, I don't like what they're doing. Now, I, I personally feel this in... And I'll tell you, one of the ways that I, I feel this most is when I become judgmental of other pastors. You know, we, we are part of a church planning movement, and so the pastors work together a lot. And we're also part of a Presbyterian church, and so the Presbyterian church means that the pastors meet together a lot. And we work together on certain things. It's not just the pastors, it's other elders, it's the churches as a whole, and we'll do more of that. But I find that I'm critical of other pastors most when I've got something in my own life, when I've got something that I'm not feeling like I'm measuring up to as a pastor. I'm not quite doing my job like I'm supposed to. I look at other people. And, and here's, here's what I think that, that means for me. I, this is fairly new. When, when I look on somebody else with a critical spirit, I... 
I try to hear, I've realized that God is saying, like Nathan, you're the man. Right? You have a pretty good view on what justice is when you're looking at this other rich man and the, the, the little, the poor man. But you're, you're the man. You ever find this places where you're critical of others? At work, in relationship, marriage. Is God saying to you, you're the man. You're the woman. Because it's when we are convicted of that sin, And then God actually pours out his forgiveness on us. That we find ourselves in a place, verse 13, where we can teach other transgressors God's ways. And other sinners will actually return to God. When we do it out of our own criticalness, our own selfishness, It doesn't go anywhere. But when we do it out of the outpouring of mercy that God has shown us, then other sinners return to God. And then we come to this point where David says, you know, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. He talks about sacrifice and we wonder why in the world would David put sacrifice in here anyway? It seems like a strange thing. You know, one thing he says is, look, people misquote scripture all the time. You ever heard somebody say, money is the root of all evil? You ever heard that? I heard it on NPR just the other day. Money is the root of all evil. And they quoted the Bible. No reference. Hold on. No reference. Of course, it's not money that's the root of all evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You ever heard somebody say that God didn't want sacrifices? They don't read down to verse 19 and say, then you will delight in what? Right sacrifices. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar, when people brought sacrifices after they were convicted of their sin so that they could exercise worship, God loved to see that worship. Just like when Jesus was brought to the cross, as a sacrifice for our sins. God actually delighted in that sacrifice when people came with a broken heart and in confession and said, thank you, God, for pouring out this mercy on me. 
the cynic in me says, this was just the king kind of acting above and beyond everybody else, right? Because there were two, two sins in particular that there was, there are actually more than that, but the two sins in particular where there was no sacrifice prescribed in the Old Testament. You couldn't bring even the best bull, fully grown, most expensive to atone for murder and adultery. And the cynic in me wants to say, David just acted above the law. He should have been executed. But in actuality, God was pouring out his mercy on the leader of God's people, the judge, the ultimate judge, the highest Supreme Court type judge in the land so that David could pour it out on others. A selfish king would say, thanks, now I'm going to Now I'm going to go do it all to everybody else. The king who received mercy was changed forever so that he was equipped to pour out mercy on so many more people. David suffered a lot of consequences for this sin. It says it in 2 Samuel 12 that David's family was ripped apart But David continued to rule and I think showed mercy in a way that he could not have shown mercy before. Before this, who knows how many sins he was hiding. But after this, you're the man rang out in his ears when he was tempted to hide his sin. And he was reminded over and over of God's mercy that he would show ultimately in the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. And that was the only sacrifice, by the way, that could forgive David for his sins that otherwise were not pardonable. David was actually looking forward to this greater sacrifice, whether he fully understood it or not. He was looking forward to this greater sacrifice that now we look back on to receive true forgiveness of God in his steadfast love and abundant, gut-wrenching mercy. That's, That's the mercy that we can show to others. That's the mercy that ministers to us when we realize that when Jesus said, look, if you've been angry at your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. That's an unpardonable sin. No bulls, no lambs, nothing can forgive that except for the blood of Jesus. When he said, look, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. No sacrifice can atone for that, can forgive that, except the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus does it and covers everything, even the sins of a murderer and adulterer like David. Father, would you teach us to repent from David's 
repentance. Don't let us keep it on the surface. Don't let us keep it at just mere words, but make it gut-wrenching in us so that we would be transformed and be able to show mercy as David did. Keep us from sin, O Lord. But when we do sin, remind us of Jesus' sacrifice that has paid the price, paid it all. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen.